Welcome everyone to the Rabbi and the Shrink. It's a schmooze fest about everyday ethics. We figured it would be a casual conversation. Uh, it was inspired um, first by Dave Bricker introducing me to the good rabbi. We met on an ethics panel that Dave Bricker uh, did. He's with storysailing.com. He's, he's an expert in storytelling in any format possible and a great speaker coach. And I've asked him to come. He's going to be our meeting monster. Um, the good rabbi I invited to do this with me because he is one of the most interesting minds I have ever met. And I love talking to him about ethics. It always comes out from left field and we end up in interesting places. And I love nothing more than we disagree. So uh, good rabbi is an amazing guy. He's a global speaker. He is, again, just a brilliant mind and author. And he's got a wonderful TED Talk. Um, if you could uh, put the TED Talk at some point in the, um, in the uh, Dave, in the uh, chat. So I don't know if everyone here knows about the, the tools. So we have the chat and we're gonna be, if you have questions and stuff, you can just raise your real hand if we can see your video or raise the blue hand if you go to the par participants button at the bottom and you go by your, at the very bottom of it, you can see there's all sorts of possibilities there. You can also go to your name and, um, and raise a hand. Um, we invite you to stay unmuted and camera on. We don't care if you have bad hair today, it's fine. So the purpose of today was to further discussion about everyday ethics. And why do this? Because we need it. I believe that America is having an interesting opportunity for a do-over on how we think and how we speak and how we act in terms of our ethics. So now that there's so much energy around that, I figured we'd get that started. And so the goal is civility. Ethics is the solution. And so Rabbi, here's the first question to you, sir. What is the combination of ethics and civility and, and what's the relation? There's a fascinating book by Professor Stephen L. Carter called Civility. And he makes an observation in there that when you hear it, it sounds obvious. But uh, like so many obvious things, we don't notice them until they're pointed out to us. He says that civility is the root of civilization. Same word, same concept. And what is civilization? What makes civilization work? What makes a people civilized? When they are committed to common values, when they are committed to a social structure. And as a matter of fact, I just heard um, in the past week, a distinction by, by the late uh, Rabbi Lloyd Jonathan Sachs, who just passed away very sadly last month. He makes a distinction between what we call the social contract, which is the agreement that we are going to live together and get along and abide by certain rules in order for all of us to benefit from the um, security and the stability that society provides. He makes a distinction between a social contract and a social covenant. And I think it's a very, very powerful insight because a covenant is a commitment to a relationship. A contract is an, really an arrangement of mutual self-interest and when 
when we commit ourselves to higher values, to common values, to goals, I want to be a member of a community, not just because it's in my best interest, but because it serves the best interests of all of us. And ultimately, that's what ethics is all about. Ethics is the discipline of recognizing and taking responsibility for the impact our actions have on other people. And there's so much talk about rights today. And rights are important. But if I'm worried about my rights and you're worried about your rights, we're going to be butting heads all the time. But if I'm taking responsibility for your rights and you're taking responsibility for my rights, we are always going to be able to find a way to work together, to find common ground, and to be respectful of one another. So it's the ethical mindset that creates the commitment that leads to a civil culture. So how can we have a civil culture when we all disagree on our shared values? Allegedly shared yeah, values. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. <laughs> I didn't, uh, and you know, there, there the truth is we can't. <laughs> uh, what we have to do is we have to first identify those basic values, those principles we all agree with and we are all invested in. And then we have to have conversations like this one where we're willing to disagree Right? engaged in what's called constructive disagreement, because then we can start to understand each other. In other words, if, if I'm so convinced that I'm right, that I devalue anyone who disagrees with me, we're not going to be able to get anywhere. But if I'm at least open-minded enough to make the effort to understand how others get to their values and be willing to discuss and debate and recognize that we're not going to agree on everything, but if we're coming from a place of, of intellectual integrity, then at least I'm willing to listen to you. Maybe you have insights into my perspective that I haven't thought of. Maybe occasionally you can show me where I'm wrong. Maybe I can show you where you're wrong. Or maybe we can just find ways of seeing how we each have an angle on the truth. And it's really more a different, it's a difference of priorities rather than core values. But if we aren't willing to engage in those types of discussions, then we're really on the track to the dissolution of civilization. I think that was very well said. These days with holidays and with the new year coming up, we are all dealing with family. Many of the family discussions have to do with listening to people that we disagree with or don't like what they say or how they say it or to whom they say it, right? We all have that aunt or uncle and sometimes it's our turn uh, to make people uh, cringe a little. I would love to open it up. So what are some of the ethical challenges in family life uh, or in community? Which, if, And you don't have to speak for yourself. So let's make it in one voice. What are the challenges families are having, neighborhoods, communities, workplaces? Um, we don't have to make this personal. Issues, ladies and gentlemen? This is the audience participation section. It is. Dave, Dave Bricker. Bricker, you have to unmute yourself, sir. Just thought I would seed the pot here with some ideas, but I think one of the big ones lately has been mask wearing with respect <laughs> to COVID. 
And we have a lot of people who feel like being the mask mandate, which I personally think there should be a mandate and needs to be, but that's perhaps secondary. Uh, people feel that that infringes on their rights, that they have a right to choose whether or not to wear a mask. To me, it's like saying I have the right to choose which side of the road I want to drive on. Well, and in Florida, you do. <laughs> right. But that's a different problem. But I think that there is this idea that, you know, having having rights is not the same thing as entitlement and there's this idea of balance i we have a lot of trust issues there's there's the right to wear a mask there's also the idea people are worried about offending somebody so if somebody comes to your door to deliver a pizza boy am i going to defend the am i going to offend the delivery person if i wear a mask are they going to feel like i'm assuming they're contagious and we have to get past some of these issues. I'd be interested to hear some of you weigh in on those vortices and swirling uh, arguments and things in that little milieu there. So let's start with the basic question. Is it ethical to wear a mask because there's a law or is it unethical to wear one if we don't believe we shouldn't wear one? Let's address the basic issue of ethics there. What do you guys think? Well, I recall uh, just recently, there was a story in the news about a, uh, I think it was a county supervisor in uh, California, might've been Los Angeles. And uh, she was one of a group of leaders who had pushed through legislation to close restaurants in the interest of public health. The next day or so later, she was seen eating at a restaurant. And when she was asked about it, she said the law hadn't gone into effect yet. Okay, she hadn't broken any laws, but what's the point? what was the point behind the legislation? The point behind the legislation was that it's dangerous for people to congregate in restaurants. Well, if it's a bad idea to be in a restaurant, what is she doing in a restaurant regardless of whether it's legal or not? And if it's okay for her to be in the restaurant, which she said is fine because she was observing all the necessary precautions, well, then why did she push through the legislation? There's a certain inconsistency in the logic and it doesn't come down to what's legal it comes down to what are, in a business sense, we say, what are best practices? If it's the right thing to do, then I don't need the law to tell me to do it. If it's not the right thing to do, I don't need the law to prohibit me from doing it. But if we use the law as an excuse to circumvent what is really in our own and in others' best interest, then we've really missed the whole understanding that law is not just about what I can get away with. Law is a guide to try to help us live lives that, lives that benefit ourselves and others. Thoughts? I, I would add that there's another whole part of the mask conundrum. Why? mandate a mask in the first place? Where is the scientific evidence that proves that mask wearing reduces incidence of the virus? 
I have seen conflicting data. I have seen charts that uh, map the illness in places where the mask has been mandated very strictly and places where they're completely open. And the incident, the, the numbers of people contracting COVID track identically. So there, if nothing else, there's anecdotal evidence that says masks don't help. More, more than anything, it's we peaked in the spring, it came down in the summer months, and it's going back up in the winter months, which is the typical trajectory for flu. So I look at the mask mandate and ask, what's it really doing besides dividing people? It has been extremely divisive. So since I can't prove the science, I take the stance, I, I am not a mask wearer. I have extreme difficulty breathing with a mask. So I don't wear one unless it's required. So when I go to any kind of store where it says on the door, masks required for entry, I will wear a mask. When I'm around my friends or family who are immunocompromised, I will wear a mask because if it helps them feel more comfortable and there's a chance that it could help, then I'm willing to do it for the sake of relationship. It's a good point. Richard, you had a, a comment? <clears throat> yes, I. one of the things that uh, I find uh, a bit mind boggling is that you know, when, we, when we look at all of the um, problems that we see happening in, in our society, particularly today, you know, all the rioting and the protesting, all, all the uh, difficulties that uh, society has with people getting along with each other, um, it really all seems to boil down to ethics. People are complaining about that they're not being treated ethically. You know, the government isn't, uh, you know, passing uh, laws that, that um, uh, are ethical enough. And so it all seems to boil down to ethics. And, and what, so what I find mind boggling is why, why hasn't the public educational system mandated, man, why don't they mandate at least one class on ethics in the public school system so that people can at least you know, learn something about ethics? Uh, you know, ethics is a huge, huge body, there's a huge body of knowledge on ethics. Eth ethics is a, an entire field of study. Why it is. is it that it despite the fact we have we have all these ethical issues that are that, that basically are the bottom line for all the laws that we have and all the political disagreements we have, it all boils down to ethics. Why is it that nobody has mandated at least one course in the public school system on ethics? I find this absolutely mind-boggling. It is, and many of the school systems are afraid of dealing with ethics because of values. They've gotten around that by many school systems now mandate um, a portion of curriculum, not any particular class on critical thinking, mm -hmm. which is an aspect of ethics, but it's certainly not ethics. So then it leads to the question, how do we teach ethics to kids, to grownups, to ourselves?
What are your thoughts? How do we teach it? I think you just touched on the, the starting point, which is critical thinking. Uh, you know, when we, there's one of the buzzwords going around today is unconscious bias. Yes. So how do you address unconscious bias? It requires self-awareness. Yeah. And self-awareness is something that is developed through critical thinking, being able to look at a subject from both sides. You know, very often in debate societies, um, if you have a, a moderator or a teacher who's really astute, you know, they'll ask the, the students what their beliefs are about a certain uh, topic, and then the ones who are for it will have to argue the position against it and vice versa. And that's an incredibly useful exercise yeah. because once you start, and Nino who's really written about this and is to my mind, one of the most important voices in, the, in society today is Jonathan Haidt. Um, his TED talk is definitely one that's worth watching. And uh, when he was working on his book, uh, The Righteous Mind, he had actually set out, he says, to argue against conservative political ideas. But he had the intellectual integrity to recognize that he needed to represent them accurately before he attacked them. And in studying them and understanding them, he discovered that they weren't quite as wacky as he had thought them to be. And he actually shifted his political position. He didn't become a conservative, but he became much more moderate because once he was able to understand both sides of the issue, he got a more complete picture of the subject. And certainly when it comes down to, to ethics, um, it's that it's that willingness to examine difficult subjects and options and alternatives from all the different sides, to gain as much information as possible, to evaluate it, to talk to people who feel differently in order to hear what they have to say and how they can defend their position, we develop a much more complete and much more mature worldview that is definitely gonna guide us in making more ethical decisions. For kids and families, there's a book called E is for Ethics, and I forget who wrote it, but it's really, it's a cute little book, and it invites conversations on various ethical issues, and it invites also what the good rabbi is talking about, more the debate mentality. So taking different points of view, um, expressing, uh, showing empathy and compassion by putting yourself in others' shoes uh, arguing their points. So in my family, uh, we escaped communist Cuba. And we often then had debates, why are you a communist? And that we had to defend communism. That never sat well with any of us, uh, but we learned to defend the opposite point of view. What it teaches you is how little you know about your own opinion and how little you know about exploring those lines of differences. It's kind of like you don't really understand English until you study the grammar in another country, right. in another language. And then you begin to understand what English is about and how hard it is. So it's hard to know the me without knowing the not me, right? So I think that is a great book. So what keeps us from having ethical discussions that 
inform ourselves and others about the possibilities for choices in thinking, feeling, behaving? What keeps us from doing that? What are the barriers? I think a lot of it is um, that we tend to form our opinions from our environment when we're young. I mean, I, I grew up in a very unusual home. Um, my parents were very secular Jews in Southern California and extremely politically conservative, which was almost unheard of. And I grew up absorbing the political values of my parents. And at some point, whether it was high school or college, that I actually started having conversations on a mature level with people at other points of view, I actually had to defend the positions that I was espousing. Now, I could have responded in one of two ways. I could have simply asserted I was right. I could have surrounded myself with people who thought like I did. Um, or I could actually try to think through the positions that other people were presenting. And sometimes it's just too scary for people to do that. If I've been, the, and especially the, the older I get and the longer I've held the same values, then the more threatening it is to my sense of identity. You mean I've been believing the wrong thing? for five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. And now I have to admit that I've been wrong for all that time. That can be a real blow to the ego. You know, we don't like to be wrong. We don't like other people to correct us. You know, the sages say a person should love rebuke. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because in biblical Hebrew, the root of the word rebuke is related to the root of the word that means validation. Because if I rebuke you, what I'm really saying is, I believe you can do better. And that's why it's so important how we say things, not just what we say. People who are really adept, they have tact, they have diplomacy, they have sensitivity. They can get us to hear things we don't want to hear and make it go down easier. But when we, in this sort of confrontational um, mode that we so easily get into, where I'm demanding that I'm right, you're demanding you're right, and we're both threatened because neither one of us is very secure in our position because we haven't thought them through, and we don't really know how we got there, and we don't know exactly how to defend ourselves, and we're terrified that maybe we're going to be exposed as being frauds in our beliefs, better to just retreat, withdraw, become dogmatic, and try and only associate with people who think the way we do. And then, of course, that devolves into the groupthink and the tribalism and the partisanship that characterizes so much of society. And yet it's so hard for people to rebuke people without shame. So being a, I'm Roman Catholic and we're very familiar with the guilt. You guys do guilt differently in the Jewish tradition, but guilt is guilt. It's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And one of the gifts that it gives is a sense of defensiveness and with shame that helps people close their minds. So what can we do about that? Let's uh, everyone weigh in. How do you offer this amazing rebuke that is gonna help people feel validated without shaming them so that they shut off their minds, hearts and souls? What's the solution? 
Well, there's a strategy that I teach in sales training. It's about affirming what you can affirm, calling out the good, uh, connecting with someone on a point of agreement, and then asking permission to provide a different perspective. So that's a, a mechanism, uh, a framework of, of communicating, if you will, that lets someone know that you appreciate them, you care about them, and you care about them enough to not let them stay stuck where they are. Ultimately, it's their decision whether they accept, assimilate, or reject the perspective that you put forth. But by affirming first, you often can win the chance to voice that other perspective where if you come in judgment, they won't hear what you're saying anyway. I think she brings up a good point. Dave Booker. I'll second part of what Deb said, because I think it's very important that permission component. Very often, especially in today's political climate, we hear something and we immediately issue a challenge. And when you challenge somebody's beliefs, directly, they tend to resist that challenge. They tend to become defensive and shut down. Whereas one of the things I used to do, I taught, uh, I was a university professor for almost 15 years. And whenever I needed to challenge a student's work, I taught graphic design. So there were opinions and things that were not necessarily founded in mathematical principles, but best practices nonetheless. And I would always ask that student, do you mind if I critique your work in front of the class? Because you're the first one to, to, to do this, but I know other people will benefit from that. I never had a student turn me down, but I was always very polite. Are you open to discussing another point of view? And if people aren't, then I save my breath. But the permission component is very important to the discussion. Yeah, I love how you did that, Dave. Thank you. That's very good. And how about you, Richard, sir? I think that I think that to a large extent, the reason why uh, we don't talk about ethics uh, hardly at all is because I think it boils down to to self-image. I think if you if 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 somebody is challenged, so you challenge somebody about something that's ethical, and essentially what you tell saying to the person is that that. Uh, you you're viewing them in a way that they don't want to be viewed. So uh, people want to be viewed the way they view themselves. Because if you don't view them the way they view themselves, then it's very possible you you will behave in a way that will that will be harmful to them, that they won't like. So when you challenge them on some on an ethical issue you're essentially presenting to them that you view them in a way that they don't view themselves. And that challenges their, their, their own self-image. And nothing is more important to a person than their own self-image. And so unless somebody uh, 
is the kind of person who wants to improve and become a better person and is willing to look at themselves and change and consider that maybe they, you know, they're not the uh, best person they can be. If you don't admit to yourself that you're not the best person that you could possibly be yet, uh, but you think that you're just right the way you are and there's no room for improvement, uh, you're not going to take kindly to people uh, suggesting that uh, your behavior, because ethics is all about behavior. It's all about the way you behave. Someone challenges you on, a, on an ethical issue, you're, you're basically saying to them, you're not behaving properly. And so you're challenging literally who the person is. And so I think self-image is uh, at the core of why most people uh, don't naturally, uh, why, why people tend not to uh, talk about ethics because it challenges them. It's that they could be challenged, their own image of themselves can be challenged. And uh, it's, it truly is mind boggling to me, uh, given that, that the, the bottom line is the way people behave. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. How do you behave? Are you behaving in the best way possible? Are, do, are you treating people in the best way they should be treated? And uh, it's just really mind boggling that people are not talking about ethics uh, as a, as a uh, uh, why isn't ethics like one of the most important things that people are discussing? I, That's I, why I, we're doing I, this. We want to start a viral discussion and a viral um, skill set for how do you talk about things? Because let's say someone challenges you. We have just as much responsibility in closing down the conversation or furthering it, correct? Mm -hmm. And I think with how we each behave and each of you have provided some interesting solutions. So let's come up with a template. How do we get the conversation started? And when someone is uh, challenging in a non-productive way, what are ways we can respond? So first off the positive, how do we, re how do we start the conversation or for some of us continue it? Well, I would say that uh, I wanna become the most ethical person I could possibly be. I, I just wanna be the best person I could be. I wanna behave in the best way possible. I wanna behave in a way that not only doesn't offend people, but that actually empowers people. And, you know, uh, I, I've admitted to myself that I don't have all the answers, uh, that there's room for improvement. And uh, for that reason, I'm interested in talking about ethics because that's what ethics is all about, how we behave, uh, how we interact with people. So if someone comes up to you, Richard, or Joanna, or Dave, and says, I have a problem with your behavior. Let's say it's because you're wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, whatever it is. Then what is the next step in furthering that discussion? And, and Rabbi, you can always weigh in since you are the rabbi and the shrink, right? I think going back to the point that was, was made earlier, um, that because it has to do with self-image, the best way to start any engagement is by validating something in the other person. Um, you know, as, as a, when I was, I was a high school teacher, uh, sometimes I would ask questions of the class and sometimes students would respond with pretty imaginative, sometimes wacky um, suggestions. 
And what I never wanted to do as a teacher was shut down a student's participation by immediately rejecting what they had said. So always find something positive in the other person's point of view, in, in the other person's intentions. And it's also a matter of showing that I've made the effort to understand. So if somebody explains a point of view to me and I think they're wrong, the first thing for me to do is to articulate back to them what they said so that they know I've heard them and I'm not attacking without understanding to find something that I can agree with so that I'm not just looking for argument. And then I can go into my point of view. If I see somebody not wearing a mask and I think they should, instead of attacking, put on your mask, I could say, why do you feel that it's not important to wear a mask? Now I've already opened up the possibility for conversation and I can hear them out. I can paraphrase back what they said to show that I've heard them. And then I can offer my point of view. As my wife likes to say, the next time you go in for surgery, do you not want the surgeon to be wearing a mask? It's something that takes it out of the COVID context and puts it into a context we can all relate to. And coming at a topic uh, more obliquely than head on is another way that we can approach difficult conversations. Just to open up the dialogue from a point of view of, of, of respect, of mutual understanding, trying to get to some kind of a, a deeper appreciation of both sides of the issue. And one of the issues is that some of us are not comfortable disagreeing so when we ask questions, especially why questions, we sometimes have attitude. We can almost hear the disagreement or the eye roll in our voices, right? So I think being careful, like the rabbi is very respectful so he can use the word why. But for many of us, especially if we're annoyed or angry, it would be best to avoid the word why to say, help me understand. I'd like to understand kind of the language that Deb used you know, help me understand. The rabbi can use any word he wants because he's very non-threatening, although they're foolish not to be threatened by you, sir, because uh, uh, your, your wit is uh, even better than your humility. So that's <laughs> one of the issues. All right, so Joanna, you wanted to weigh in, ma'am. Yeah, I think it's a funny question for me because I'm com a complete conflict avoider, which is probably one of my negative traits. I, I'd prefer to say like, oh, that person's not wearing a mask. It's not my business or I would just kind of shy away from that. But I think having become, I'm sure you noticed a little while ago, uh, my son, becoming a mother, there's yeah. no avoiding conflict. There's conflict on a daily basis, whether it's eat your lunch or don't hit your sister. There's always something that occurs within the household that <laughs> you have to um, balance and weigh. So I think that being a mother has taught me a little bit more about conflict. Um, and how to have those conversations. Because if I just scream at my son and say, don't hit your sister, he's not gonna listen not to hit his sister. That's not the way to go about it. But if I sit down and say, can I hit you? Why, what's going on? Does it hurt? So if you hurt your sister, that's the reason. And then if you can have those conversations, then it's teaching me too, how to talk to other people in those types of situations. So I might not be the first one to go up to someone and say, you should be wearing a mask or ask those questions. But if somebody said something to me, I wouldn't kind of cower and run away. I'd be more open to having those conversations and 
I feel like, like the rabbi had said, it's always good to start with questions, with validations, which is kind of in mothering when I say like, can I hit you? No, why? And then they can start to think about those questions in and of themselves. And then they're able to, again, like he said, be open to hearing another point of view. When I teach ethics, I have an exercise with a two-year-old. We take turns being two-year-olds. And I figure if you can talk to a two-year-old and get them in an interesting conversation without feeling stupid, because a, stu a two-year-old can make you feel stupid and powerless in no time, right? Because they have gotcha logic. I don't know if you, you know about the gotcha app. I mean, their, their logic is their own because... because you made me hit you. You know, I mean, they. My son's favorite one is because I love you. Why did you hit your sister? Because I love her. And I'm like, I love her. Well, it doesn't work like that. I guess, right? So then the issue is if you can deal with a two year old, then you can certainly have enough power to deal with a grown up. And certainly, grown ups are often alleged grown ups as well. I mean, we, we all take turns on the age wheel, don't we? So, what are some other thoughts? Mark, welcome. You just joined us. We're talking about ethics. We're Thank also talking about much. some of the ways to get that ethical conversation started. I, I don't know if I'm qualified to respond because I'm not a mother. Well, you can be a father and be qualified. You can be <laughs> an uncle, an aunt, a neighbor. We do not actually, have to have children to struggle with, with uh, the issue of ethics. I, I actually have, uh, I actually have two children and four grandchildren, so I guess I'm qualified. You are more than qualified. Well, in this day and age, you can call yourself anything. So if you want to be a mother, just say I'm a mother. Oh, you know what? I think I'm going to stay away from that one. <clears throat> that might be a good idea. Yeah, I will, I will tell you this, though. I'll just share this and forgive me if it seems like a shameless plug. Um, but this is uh, one of three children's books that I've written and published. And it's given me the opportunity um, to be in groups of children that number three and 400 at a time. So I, I absolutely take your point about children and their logic. And uh, <clears throat> if you go into a group like that and you don't bring your A game, you're in trouble really quickly. They're very good instructors. And they, <clears throat> oh, teach yes, us, they, are. they teach us where there are holes in our logic and in our cognitive uh, understanding of our values. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, and and it's funny, uh, the rabbi and I had a conversation once and I had not yet listened to his TED talk. Um, and I was telling him that a lot of times I think ethics are borrowed. We borrow it from our parents, from our brother and sister, from our rabbi and priest, from our superheroes. I don't know about you, but I like Spider-Man. Um, and so when I was a kid, those ethics, we could have conversations and fight about them based on others. Sometimes we don't actually really adopt them. We think we have, and we cannot defend them because they're just borrowed. And so the rabbi had talked about that. So um, Richard, you had a discussion. Um, you had something, um, you know what you have in your mind. Is it a good time now to ask the rabbi to talk about his TED talk or will your question follow better before that? I'll let you self address that, Richard. Well, I'm gonna do the ethical thing. And I'm going to defer to the rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> Might be ethical, but it's highly unusual. <laughs> All right, good rabbi, go for it, sir. <laughs> wait, wait, what am I going for? <laughs> I asked, I think the idea of the borrowed ethics, 
Um, and you and I were talking about it and you thought I had watched TED Talk is about, about that. So please, um, and I'm not asking you to brag. I'm asking you to tell us about your TED Talk. Because if I asked him to brag, he wouldn't. But I would brag for him. <laughs> Go for it, sir. Well, I actually, the, the TED Talk actually goes, it jumps around chronologically. But um, the, the story that chronologically comes first is when I was in high school. And uh, I was chatting with, uh, with another student before class one morning. And uh, for one reason or another, uh, I declared that I was an atheist. And he looked at me and very straightforwardly said, that's stupid. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? And, and I, I'm still fascinated. I mean, it's been four, more than 40 years and, and I still can visualize this conversation where he said to me, it makes no more sense not to believe in God than it makes to believe in God. You can't prove either one. Why do you want to believe in something you can't prove? And uh, on the spot, I did something completely out of character. I admitted he was right. <laughs> <clears throat> and, I, and I changed my label. I stopped calling myself an, an atheist. I started calling myself an agnostic. And I kept that label for about six years until I ended up trapped in a room with a Hasidic rabbi <laughs> who was so articulate and so rational and who was everything that I never would have believed someone who looked like him could actually be, which is an important part of the conversation too, because we stereotype. We make assumptions about who people are and what they believe and how they act and whether or not it's worthwhile for us to engage them in conversation. And when I say I was trapped in the room, I was literally trapped in the room or I would have left the moment he walked in. And I'd taken a seat in the back corner and the room was so packed, I would have had to climb over a dozen people, make a spectacle of myself. But when he started to talk, my first reaction was, how could someone who looks like this sound like this? It just wasn't possible based on my perception of reality at the time. And breaking a stereotype is one of the tactics that I try to use. Again, being an Orthodox rabbi, people will make assumptions about what kind of person I am and what I have to say and how I'm going to present myself. And being able to break someone's stereotype or challenge someone's stereotype is a very effective technique to open up conversation. And, and my favorite part about the TED Talk is when I had finished, I went off the stage, I circled around, I was coming back into the, into the auditorium to hear the next speaker, and a woman intercepted me. And she said, you know, when you got up on that stage, I knew exactly what kind of person you were. And I knew exactly what kind of talk you were going to give. And you just blew away all my expectations. Thank you. <laughs> I thought, wow, this is really coming full circle. <laughs> it was so gratifying. Because that, that's really what TED is all about, right? It's whether it always achieves it or not, I don't know. But the idea is to get us to think in new ways, to help us uh, engage new ideas. And we can only do that if we're willing to challenge our own ideas and to re-examine our beliefs 
and entertain the possibility that, you know, you reminded me in, in high school, I was teaching my, my students the word ideologue. Mm. And one of the students asked me, aren't we ideologues? Meaning Orthodox Jews. And I said, no. I said, you prove to me that what I believe is wrong and I'll take off my yarmulke and go get a bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> I said, but I don't think you're going to because I've spent a lot of time <laughs> investigating all the different ways of looking at life and looking at the world and looking at reality. But I'm gonna willing to listen. You tell me you believe in leprechauns, I'll ask you why and I'll listen to you. And if you have a substantive argument, okay, I may reconsider my opinion. But there always has to be that willingness to hear people out, to hear people's challenges, to hear people's defense of their own positions, and to do it respectfully, and to show them that we've heard them. Because now we start building relationships and we start opening up dialogue. Bravo, that's perfect. All right, Richard, sir, you waited so politely. I just wanted to share two very small things that I do that I consider very ethical uh, that opens up the possibility of entering into, into a potentially contentious conversation. One is that if somebody has a problem with something that I did and they confront me with it, the first thing I do is thank them. Thank them for not withholding it because if they withheld it, then they would, it, it would just fester and it would interfere with our ability to, to, to communicate and have a relationship. So I thank them for, for telling me right up front. And what, you know, please tell me what it is. What did I do? What, what happened, you know? And then uh, the second thing is, if I have a problem with what somebody else does, um, I'm gonna wanna ask them, you know, something, I'm gonna wanna ask them why they did it or what, you know, and if I wanna, if I ask somebody a question that could potentially be confronting, I ask them permission to ask them a question. You mind if I ask you a question? The reason why I do that is because whenever you ask somebody a question, you're imposing your will on them. Somebody asks you a question, they have to respond. Even if they ignore you, they're choosing to ignore you. So I know that whenever I ask them a question, I'm imposing myself on them in one way or another, and I ask them permission to ask them a question up front. So those are two things that are two small things that I do uh, to uh, try to uh, you know, mitigate the potential um, confrontation, you know, uh, um, you know uh, unsuccessful confrontation. Um, but there's, there's one other thing I just wanted to share and that is that you know, I used to believe, I actually had the belief that people you know, are totally responsible. You know, people are responsible for their feelings. They're responsible for the feelings and however they feel, it's their responsibility and I have nothing to do with it. So doing something that, and, that someone felt was insulting without the intention to insult them, I have no intention of insulting them, but I say something, they get insulted. It happens, well, it happens, right? You, 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 you say something, someone gets insulted by it, you didn't mean to insult them. People get insulted for all kinds of reasons. I used to think, well, you know, I, I didn't try to insult you. I wasn't trying to insult you. I'm sorry that you got insulted, but it's, you know, I mean, and I used to think it's their problem. 
so, so, you know, I would never apologize to someone in a situation like that because I had no intentions of, of, of insulting them. They got insulted. It's their psychological problem. You know, it's, they have to deal with it. But then when I became religious and I started learning about ethics, I learned that it doesn't make any difference whether you meant to insult someone, you didn't mean to insult someone. Somebody felt insulted by something you said, even though you didn't mean to insult them, had nothing yet, nothing, nothing to do with them. They got insulted. I apologize. I'm sorry. I really sorry. I'm sorry. I did. I'm sorry. I said something that, you know, I'm sorry that you got, I'm sorry that I said it. Sorry. I just apologize. Even though I don't have to, I don't have to apologize. I didn't do anything wrong. I don't have to become defensive, but I apologize because it's the ethical thing to do. It's the ethical thing to do. And so what I, my point is this, is that I had all kinds of beliefs about what's ethical and what's not ethical. I had all kinds of beliefs about, you know, responsibility and how to relate to people. Many of which were just wrong. And it wasn't until I learned about ethics that I changed my beliefs about how to interact with people. And so, uh, you know, I just wanted to share that. I, I, I you know, it's, it's something I learned and I, I you know, it's, uh, you know, we, I think we have to question our beliefs about uh, how we relate to people and see if we can improve them. Thank you. I have one comment about that, then Dave, then Joanna. Um, many times men and women, you may have noticed, communicate differently. Women often, oh. no, I, I know, <laughs> and I've offended everyone. And um, one of the things that women often do is may ask a question. Well, my philosophy is you already asked it, next. So the issue of asking permission you're already asking a question, may I have permission? I think what men can do is not always the same as what women can do. It depends on how they're perceived and how they're respected or whatever. So I think just even listening to the nuance of language. So for women, I would suggest if they're really powerful and old, they can just, they can practically talk like men, it doesn't matter. But for most women, especially sweet young things, I think they just say, I would like to say something and then say it. You basically announce it, which gives the other grown-up full opportunity to say, no, I don't want to hear it, or yes, please. So asking for permission is a double-edged sword. It's lovely for a powerful white man to do that. But for in many contexts, that doesn't work. That disavows the person initiating the conversation. So just keep in mind context. All right, so then Dave Bricker and then Joanna. just wanted to comment on something Richard said, which is this idea of the apology. And it's, it's very interesting. I know somebody I've known for decades who has never apologized for anything and, uh, and has had reason to, but some people seem to feel that an apology is an admission of guilt or culpability, whereas an apology can simply be regret that you made somebody feel bad. I've had times where I've upset a friend and thought that I was completely in the right and that their position was ridiculous. And yet I apologized because I regretted upsetting my friend. I think there's an ethics of the apology, which, which doesn't get discussed very often, but 
Ooh, that's a good topic. We'll get to that after Joanna. All right. All right. I just want to, again, I don't, I don't want to always keep going back to mothering, but I feel like that's kind of my MO. Joanna, <laughs> but, we, we love it. Go for it. It's okay, baby. But my one thing is my kids in school, they constantly say, I'm sorry to everyone that they come home, they hit someone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But to them, it's just a phrase that they're supposed to say. So what I've done in my house, which is different is I make them say what they did. I make them accept responsibility and then say they're going to try not to do it again. So if, for instance, hold on one second, please, baby. It'll say, I hit my sister. It was an accident or I did it on purpose. I'm going to try not to do that again, because I feel like that makes their brain think about it in a completely different way. And the reason that I started doing that was because my daughter came home from school one day and said her friend Kai hit her on the playground. And I said, well, what happened? She said, my teacher made him say, I'm sorry, but I don't believe him because he's going to do it again. And that made my brain start working in a different way to say, hey, she's right. Why are we saying we're sorry if it doesn't really mean we're sorry? And then to extend that too, I'm, I'm also divorced and my ex-husband was abusive in many ways, but he would never say he was sorry, even when he did things that were absolutely ridiculous. So in thinking about that, I'd also think about my stance, which I would close a cabinet the wrong way and say, I'm sorry. I would walk up the stairs incorrectly and say, I'm sorry. And then I started to think about the context of that and they witnessed all those things. And I wanted to make sure that we were able to kind of keep those conversations open. So just to extend on what Richard had said with the I'm sorry, I, I, I do like when they say they're sorry, but I do like to extend it to those three different ways to say what you did, say if you did it on purpose or not, and then say, you're not gonna do it again. And then there's the issue of how do we talk with our kids about when other people uh, do yucky things and fail to be wise enough or self-loving enough or powerful enough to apologize. I mean, I think helping kids have compassion for those who aren't yet strong enough to be ethical and straightforward, that's a hard one. And, and let's face it, someone who's been abusive to someone else, they don't love themselves. And it is, they often do not have the personal power to allow themselves to reflect, could this have been partially my responsibility? And uh, having compassion for that is hard, uh, especially when we were harmed by that inability or weakness of character, correct? Bingo. So then 11. I wanted to talk to Mark and then Rabbi, I have a whole question for you about apologies. I, I just wanted to make one comment in response to what Dave and Joanna said, and you just alluded to it, which is that for some people, they equate apologizing with weakness and, and they think they're somehow relinquishing whatever it is they think they're relinquishing by apologizing. That's all I wanted to say. Very good. Rabbi, sir. Uh, I actually wanted to um, follow up on a couple of points. Um, you know, Joanna, your approach is, is extremely Jewish. Uh, is every every year? I have year... said this to Mark real quick that knowing you and hearing your stories, Jonathan, makes me feel like I am Jewish inside. <laughs> I just never knew it, so I well, just say that from time to time. It, that's actually possible. Well, that's a different discussion. The... <laughs> <laughs> but you know, every year we have we have uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which follows Rosh Hashanah, which is Jewish New Year, but it's also called the Day of Judgment, and the ten day period is called the Days of Repentance. And repentance involves four steps. I have to stop doing the behavior that's wrong. I have to feel regret for having done it. I have to articulate what I did in a confession. And I have to make a plan for not repeating it. 
And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've spent a few more years parenting than you have, Joanna, but uh, I certainly know the phenomenon of telling a child, say you're sorry. Sorry. Hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, we need, to, we need to teach them that when it's age appropriate to get them used to the idea. But the real point is to inculcate them with the sense of taking responsibility and feeling remorseful, feeling regretful. And, and, and what you were saying, Richard, about giving offense unintended, a colleague of mine and, and, a, and a good friend, Mark Brown, uh, and he's a wonderful speaker and uh, has this wonderful Jamaican accent, which just isn't fair because it <laughs> makes him so much more compelling. <laughs> he, told me, he told me that he was, he was uh, approached by someone after a presentation and the person said, I was right, I was with you up until you used a word that offended me. What was the word he used? Mark made reference to his wife. And the word wife offended this person in the audience. And so Mark said, I'm sorry you took offense at that, but that's who she is. That's how she identifies herself. That's how I identify her. And that's what I'm going to call her. So you can, you can strike a balance between acknowledging that someone has a problem with something you did. And at the same time, asserting that you don't feel that there was any sound basis for offense to have been taken. I don't need to, you know, in this age of microaggressions, where anything that is perceived as being offensive can be subject to censure. Um, you know, we, we really need to have a certain level of maturity where we recognize that you know, not, not everybody's gonna come at, uh, come at a so topic the same way. We, we have different vocabularies, we have different styles, and sometimes we might find something a little bit abrasive or not the way we would do it, without needing to take offense at the way someone else uh, articulates themselves. Thank you. That was well said. I'm mindful of the time. And so I think we're gonna leave apology for another time, but we have a word of the day. I'm really sorry about with. that. And then we had a question. <laughs> Here's the word of the day. Rabbi, this is for you, ultra crepidarian. Yeah, you missed a syllable, right? Ultra crepidarianism. Uh, <laughs> right? Which means the giving of opinion or advice outside one's area of knowledge or expertise. Oh, wow. Oh. And, uh, you know, certainly when we're debating subjects like the response to COVID, um, masks, no masks, social distancing, climate change. Uh, economy, you name it. How many people are out there passionately asserting one point of view or another when they have absolutely no basis for having an opinion <laughs> on that particular subject? <laughs> and having the, the intellectual integrity and humility to say, you know, I'm not really qualified to have an opinion on this subject. I still may have to take a stand somewhere, but I'm not an authority on the issue and I shouldn't be presenting myself as one. 
And I think that whole idea of representation, what allows us to say we're an expert doesn't mean that we can't have an opinion, but how we state it certainly makes a difference. Is that an ethical issue? Huge. And in fact, in many of the licensing uh, boards for different professionals, misrepresenting one's area of expertise is grounds for immediate removal of that license. Um, whether it's uh, allowing someone to call us an MD when we're not an MD, like for instance, I'm a psychologist. But if I don't maintain my license, I can't call myself a psychologist anymore. I then become a psychotherapist. Uh -huh. So even using the term psychologist implies that I'm licensed, actively licensed. Yeah. I could call myself a retired psychologist because right. now they have that designation. But I mean, even all of those things, you can affirm um, your ethics, a lot of times, by even how we describe ourselves. Is there false modesty? Are we exaggerating? Um, do we believe we have the truth? Like, I'm now an expert in Jewish law because my friend is the rabbi. No, I'm a Catholic Cuban woman who is going to be taking his class. I mean, I'm not an expert in the law. I'm pretty good at thinking about misbehavior, but I'm not an ethicist. I'm a misbehavior expert. So, you know, how we describe ourselves makes a difference. So here's the million dollar question. I asked a good rabbi to join us because I really have this passion that we can do better. And I thought if we get people who are devoted in making the world a better place, one ethical decision and behavior at a time, I thought maybe we could make a big difference. The rabbi I thought is the best person to do it with me. I and will invite my friend Dave Bricker to just about anything we do because he is wonderful and makes anything we do better. Shall we do this again or is this a one trick pony? I think this is a extremely important topic. And so if we, we would be remiss if we don't do this again. Okay, and does everyone is, put thumbs up or thumbs down? Do we do this again or not? Thumbs up. I, I, okay. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, it, it, this is just a fascinating thing. Um, we, we, some of us on this call, know some other people who have already attempted something like this. Um, yes. And at least in my humble, non-authoritative opinion, um, haven't done so well. Um, and so Jonasen is part of an, another group that's about to convene the first of the year. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated that this is a topic that seems to be um, important to so many people. So anyway, that's, that's my long-winded way of saying yes. So what's the secret to doing well? So there's questions in mind. Do we like the format? Is the time and place okay? I mean, we decided to do it on a Tuesday because Tuesdays are kind of I mean, not everything's a Monday or a Friday, you know? So we thought it was kind of midday time. And we thought we'd do it at a time that people in the West Coast could join and the East Coast, you know, equally convenient or inconvenient to all. So first question is, do we like the time and day of this? I like the day, but if we could do one instead of 12, I'd have someone napping. So that might be easier. <laughs> all right. No, um, I, don't, I don't nap anymore. Oh, sorry, Mark. <laughs> I cannot do the 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 one unless because I have a, a standing program at two, 
But how about 1230? I loaf for myself, so my time is flexible. Well, thank you, sir. I, I like a man who, who is flexible. All right. So is 1230 okay for people? Yes. And 1230 on Tuesdays? So then there goes the frequency. We're hitting the holidays. And um, I've talked to some colleagues and friends. Some people say we should start weekly to get things moving, especially with the holidays. They might say, how do I handle my mother-in-law without killing her? Or, you know, things like that. And that's an ethical dilemma. Thou shalt not kill. He says it's so messy. I mean, really. So, um, so some suggest we start weekly. Uh, some say we should go monthly. What is, what is your recommendation? I mean, I, I uh, personally, uh, I, I, ethics is uh, very much what my life is all about. So weekly is fine with me. I, uh, the more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. All right. How about the rest of you? Wide open. Yeah, Wide weekly open. works fine for me. I don't, I don't. All right. As long as Mark's okay with it, I'm okay with it. And I okay, think that we was fun. Invite some people and expand the audience. Yeah, little. we have to expand. We we didn't. We invited some people. We wanted to start small um, because this is, after all, an experiment, and we wanted to start with um, people we felt would be discerning and tell us this is good, this is not good. I like this. I didn't like this. So our idea each time was to start with a topic, and then we can branch off of that. I suggest that the next topic should be around the issue of dealing with challenging people and include apologies as part of that. That's, so each time I'm gonna propose a topic that comes organically from our discussion um, and move it that way. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, it does. I'd like to understand um, a little more specifically what you mean about challenging people. Well, everyone can be difficult at times from, um, and we kind of started out with that a little bit. Um, not me. Not, no, you never, Dave Bricker, never. Uh, he's got white man privilege. He's never wrong, never difficult. Which is funny because well, he's- I'd like to talk about white man privilege, yes. uh, actually. I was teasing him, uh, yes. That to, me, that to me is a highly ethical issue. It is. Yes, so let's it talk is. about that. Let's talk we about that. We a lot of trust established before we get into that one. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> I, I was teasing him because Dave is one of my dearest friends. And he and I talk about, that he needs to be aware of that perception that he's dealing with that. Um, Who's dealing with that? Uh, the issue of white men privilege, that an audience might look at what he says and he has to be mindful of people's reaction to their perception. Because ethics isn't just what we do or say or think, it's the perception of it, correct? What is, I think we should talk about what, what that is. Well, and we can, but we, we're out of time. So one of the things about ethics is, <laughs> it's a great topic. So. I propose we meet next Tuesday at this time, at the 12, at the 1230 time, to allow for Jan, Joanna and her little beauty. Um, I think all babies are beautiful, whether they're male or female. Um, and uh, oh, look at that cutie pie. And I think we're gonna talk about dealing with difficult people and conversations and situations and including apologies. That will be a starting point. So. Hopefully you'll have great examples. I have faith that your life will provide many opportunities for fresh samples. Um, whether you've found someone difficult or you have taken your turn. 
So if I everyone wanna... could, uh, if everyone could let their connections know about this, and yes. uh, we can we can build up a uh, build up a group. Let's go viral with the idea of it matters what we think, say, and do. And I think that together we can create an ethical culture that makes the world a better and stronger place. I really do believe that. Amen. Amen. That's nice. All right. So thank you all for joining and being our founding members. We appreciate it. Our intention is to make this free and keep it free. And um, we're going to though start a Patreon for some funding so that he and I, so the rabbi and I can, can do some outreach efforts. Um, and we're looking for that. And we'll uh, set that up and let you know. And thank you all. Happy, um, happy week to you. And if you have relatives, uh, good luck and enjoy. Uh, and if it's your holiday still, like me, I still have Christmas and Noche Buena. Um, and those of you who are still having family from, uh, from whatever holidays, uh, good luck to you all. Rabbi, did you want to say a goodbye? Goodbye. <laughs> Rabbis, thank, just thank you all for coming. It's been, it's been, uh, it's been a very, very valuable uh, time spent, I think. And, and thank it's you for better for you. And Dave Bricker, as always. I love always, you. Always. For everything. I, I just want to say thank you uh, for uh, actually uh, organizing this, and and because it's it's I don't think there's anything more important than 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 starting a, a dialogue about ethics in the public sector. Well, and thank you for helping us uh, continue that dialogue and spread the word. We're going to start doing a better job with social media now that we think our experiment worked, and uh, we're going to get going. We'll see you. I'll send an invite to everyone, but we're going to ask you to register. We understand. Um, that some people had a hard time with the registration, but if you register, it helps us know who's there and keep tabs of, um, of uh, what we maybe need to do differently. So give us feedback if you want. Um, my email is just uh, ask at drredshoe.com. And if you have a question you want to address, uh, send it to me and um, I share everything with the rabbi and uh, we'll come up with that. Okay, here we have Mark's email. Please put your emails. Well, I have your emails from the registration, but if you did not register, please do put your emails in the chat. If you want to save the chat, go to the chat and the little dot, dot, dot next to it, and you can press save. It'll only save from the time you entered the chat or the, the, the uh, program, okay? So it won't save anything before. All right, I'm going to say goodbye to everyone and... Make Show it a ethical week. Have fun, everyone. Great to Bye. meet everyone. Bye. Bye.